0: Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm here at RMIT University in Melbourne, and I'm presenting Talking Design. I'm with someone today who um, I find very fascinating in terms of uh, the career that he's chosen and in terms of the direction he's taken. It's Stephen Ryan. You might have remembered Stephen from as a presenter with uh, Gardening Australia ABC. I adored, it, adored listening to him when he was on, and uh, he really has uh, integrity, a vision, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. It's very, very pleasing to be here. Stephen, um, you studied a very, you know, now everyone's a designer and a creator, mm-hmm. and we're all very, you know, good with our hands. But you started... Um, training your training was at Oakley Technical College in gardening and turf yes which is almost a very unglamorous title now they'd have you know landscape design oh, landscape yes.
1: so why how did that Oh, well, it was, it was really simple, actually, Stephen. The reason I did it was it was more a technician's course. It taught you how to do stuff, whereas at the time Burnley was more sort of um, uh, upmarket and you could probably become a professor of horticulture or something, but it didn't teach you how to be a commercial nurseryman or to go out into the industry so much. Mm. Uh, it was more about... Um, because I was more interested in the horticultural side of it as a nurseryman than I was into being a landscaper, in a sense. So uh, I wanted to learn how to be a nurseryman. And so the Oakley course was far more aligned to the sort of thing I was wanting to do.
0: Unfortunately, that course no longer exists.
1: Not in that form. I, there are still horticultural courses of the same ilk, but it's not called gardening and turf management anymore. I'm not quite sure in fact what it is.
0: Um, so was. It, were you surrounded by great gardens as a child?
1: I was because I grew up at Mount Macedon and so I took it in by osmosis, really. I mean, You grow up in a place like that, and certainly we didn't come from one of the wealthy families that actually owned a place like that. But I was surrounded by them, and as a child, they were sort of my playground. So as a small child, I played Indiana Jones, swinging through people's gardens that didn't know I was there. And in fact, most of them were weekenders, so during the week, people weren't in their big gardens. (laughs) And so they were my playground, basically, You know, whether they knew it or not.
0: How lovely. Yeah,
1: and it was. It was a great, great way to grow up. Mm. Uh, and, of course, I got to know the gardeners in some of those places, and they took me under their wing because, you know, they could tell I had an interest in the natural world and horticulture and things. How,
0: how would you describe the gardens of Mount Macedon? Because it's a different, slightly different climate.
1: Yeah, I would say English hill station style, perhaps, might cover it, because when they were first developed, they were developed, of course, for the wealthy of Melbourne to come up and spend their summer vacations in a cooler climate. And so it was a little bit like the hill stations of India, where you'd escape the heat of the city, go up for the summer, and then the place would be closed down for the winter. And so nobody would be there except the gardener sort of hoeing and raking and things. Um, and so they are, you know, important sort of historical gardens, but they're, they're sort of slightly niche that, uh, almost a dead end niche that sort of, you know, nobody will ever do that again. I mean, they're, they're too big. They're too lavish. They, yeah, they spent a lot of money on them. I mean, the, the, the point of them was, in fact, to show off one's wealth. So you not only had to have a big garden, but it had to be full of all sorts of weird plants that the neighbours didn't have. So it was a competitive sort of thing. So I remember being told as a child that there was uh, a gardener up there who owned Cameron Lodge, William Cameron, and he built the Memorial Cross on the top of Mount Macedon. And Mr Cowper, who also owned one of the big gardens up there, went for a walk through uh, Mr Cameron's garden one day. And Mr Cameron was a slightly brash American who said to Mr Cowper, look, look, that's really rare, and I got them really cheaply, and I got ten of them. And I don't know what the plant was, unfortunately, but Mr Cowper turned around and said, well, they're not rare in your garden. <laughs> so no. that was the sort of thing that went on mm. up there. So there was huge competitive things. So Mount Macedon is now really a, a really important um, biomass of, of, of important botanical material and historically important gardens. It's probably the most important in Australia and I grew up amongst it.
0: Mm-hmm. So your own garden was relatively simple by comparison.
1: Oh, yes. Well, we had three acres, which was not necessarily small, um, but uh, Dad and Mum weren't really gardeners. We, we had a holiday shack that we ended up moving into. Uh, Dad got caught in the 1960s credit squeeze, and so they sold the house in Melbourne, moved into the holiday shack at Mount Macedon that had quite literally been built out of packing cases and had the outside dunny made out of a packing case that you had to slide down the slippery path to get to at night if you needed to go. Uh, so it was a fairly primitive existence as kids, but it was great fun. Um, and But because we had three acres, at about the age of ten, my as in me, at the age of ten, my dad decided that he was going to open a nursery. Even though he had no idea. He didn't know a dahlia from a dandelion. But
0: why a nursery?
1: Because he had three acres of ground. <laughs> so <laughs> you had to find a way to use it. And so for dad, you know, Mount Macedon, good climate, let's open a nursery. So he started buying a few things from some of the dandelions Nong nurserymen and uh, built a greenhouse and some shade houses and all that sort of thing. So really, our garden at Mount Masson actually turned into a nursery, and that's what really happened. And so from the age of 10, I was exposed to the world of horticulture and virtually took over because I got so excited as soon as Dad started this, I thought, my God, there's this whole world to learn about, uh, and these plants are really interesting, and so I was a sponge, and I was just taking it all in from the age of 10. So, Stephen, the... Um your Dixonia rare plant
0: nursery yeah. at Mount Macedon, is that on the same property No, your parents are different? No. On?
1: Dad um, Dad, being the entrepreneur was always the one that was likely to go crashing and burning as well, which he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in the late 70s, uh, after borrowing lots and lots of money from banks that were throwing money at him... Um, and they're taking it away. Then in the end he had to go bankrupt. So we lost the family property, and so I personally felt like I'd lost my inheritance, which was really sad. Um But I started a new nursery within 12 months on the site where I am now behind the general store because a friend owned the general store and he had this land behind. He said, do you want to stay? Because I wasn't going to leave Mount Macedon if I could avoid it. I'd been there from the age of six. So uh, it was my home. And so I started Dixonia Rare Plants in 1980 on the site I am now.
0: What's so interesting is that I think, and you'll probably agree, nurseries have become very boring. The plant selection is really quite ordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a, 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 a garden lover myself, I've been very disappointed with just the standard things that you can buy. Uh-huh. It's just, it's so sad. I think, well, you know, want to buy something, but there's really nothing there to buy. No. you, You know, I'm not into that box hedge look mm. or the iceberg roses and uh, I, I desperately sometimes go into some of these nurseries and I think, well, who's your market? Mm. Um, but then I look around and I see what people plant in their gardens and I say, oh, well, that's the market. Yeah. But your, your nursery is quite different. It's really uh, a laboratory and it's it's quite... Magical, um, mm. quite unusual. You have very rare plants. It's it's about exploring things. It's also interesting in terms of the way it's not all manicured
1: to no. the nth degree. It's almost a little bit overgrown. It is. I mean, it's an old fashioned nursery which are disappearing. In fact, I don't like to use the term for nurse as nursery for a lot of the places where you can buy plants these days. Garden centre, yes, but my concept of a nursery is a place where people nurse things mm. and in garden centres, they buy things in, flog them off, make their money. They could be selling cars or soaps. It really wouldn't matter. Uh, A nursery should be somewhere where plants are being nurtured and grown and propagated. And And I do a lot of my own propagating because I can't source a lot of the things I want to sell from anywhere else, so I have Mm -hmm. to do a lot of my own propagating. Uh, And the idea behind my nursery is, in fact, to offer people something different. I get so annoyed when you hear on radio some boffin on the radio uh, is talking to some poor dear thing that needs help, Mm -hmm. and they say, what should i plant and they say things like we'll walk around the neighborhood and see what everybody else is planting that's bound to work Mm. and in one sense they're perfectly correct it is bound to work
0: in the conditions yeah
1: but it's not inspiring people to get excited by gardening and to do something different and for me that's what gardening is all about from the nursery side of it, through to my own garden, and even to the advice I give clients that come in. I always say, "Well, you can. You probably can't afford to have a Picasso on the wall, at least an original. You probably can't have a Lamborghini in the garden, uh, parked out there. But you can certainly have a plant that all your neighbours haven't got, and it's not going to cost you the earth. And in fact," If it doesn't work, it doesn't matter because you can always recycle things and plant something new and create a gap if you get bored. So a garden should be an exciting place. It shouldn't be a piece of outside design in a way, you know, sort of like an interior that's gone out.
0: But that's, in a sense, where we've headed.
1: It is. You know, rather than looking at a garden as something... In
0: its own right, it's become just an, a room extension.
1: It is. It's a place to set up a barbecue and have a, a, a table and chairs, and maybe it have say the pool. Anything, it don't, well, it does, certainly doesn't say anything about the people, unless it's a negative.
0: <laughs> you were saying uh, on the way to the studio, you had uh, a woman or a guy. I think it was a woman yeah. come in, and she, you know, spent hours in your property. Mm. And you know, you thought she was really absorbing the whole experience and well, she obviously was. Yeah. But then at the end, she just said, look, can I get my gardener in to copy this? Yeah. So she into your own garden. Yeah,
1: into my own garden. And and that's why I've never really become, I guess, a, a, a designer per se, somebody who's going to go out and design for other people. I do a bit of garden consultative work, so I'll go along and say to people, look, you need to change that or move that around or whatever. But full landscaping I'm not really interested in doing because for me the great gardens in the world tend to be an expression of the personality of the owner. It's where the owner is and how they're working, and, you know, they might need help to bring their own ideas out but I don't want to impose my ideas on somebody else and in fact I almost see it as insulting that somebody sees my garden as fantastic and then wants to copy it I want them to go home and do their own thing um and create their own garden and because I always say a garden's a reflection of the personality Mm -hmm. of the owner and and in fact when visitors come to my garden I one of my best laugh lines is that I hope they have a really good time but if they don't like it it's their fault (laughs) <laughs> and I always get a giggle mm. from people for that because, in a mm. sense, it's true. I mean, it's, would you open up your wardrobe to let people have a look at the clothes in there? Uh, you certainly wouldn't want them to see your sock drawer, probably. Yeah. Um, so it is opening yourself up and the way your personality works to other people's ridicule, potentially.
0: It, um, Stephen, it must be exciting when customers come into the nursery and really get it and and actually say Stephen have you got this in you know I've been looking for this for ages and what's the process do people kind of if there is there a certain plant that someone might have in mind that they've been you know really desperately trying to get for many years and you say look I can get
1: that it's it does work that way sometimes. Uh, certainly there are collectors out there who are looking for specific sorts of plants for their garden, either because they collect the plants, which probably means they don't have much of a garden because it could end up being a collection, but that's fine. That's mm. what they want to do. Um, but more likely it's the people who come in who are mad keen plant people, but they wander around the nursery and they actually buy the thing they didn't know they needed. It's how it works. Mm. So they wander around and they find some plant they've never heard of before, mm. and if they're Excited by it, and they buy it, and they take it home, and they try it out. That's what my nursery's sort of about. Mm. Uh, and so, for people who are not actually really interested in their gardens and do want to do the box hedging and white gravel or whatever, they walk into my nursery, they scratch their heads, they look be
0: and they nothing here, puzzled,
1: yeah. and they walk out again. They don't quite understand it. I mean, I give plenty of information. There's big stakes and everything with names on them and in- information on the plant who fell to their death collecting in the wild for the first time, or you know. It was used in witches' potions. I put all sorts of stuff on labels that isn't actually even necessary stuff. But it's part of what gardening for me is. It's the whole learning thing. It's a story. It is a story. Every plant has a story. And every plant has something interesting about it that may be seen as trivia. But when you know about these things, it gives the plant a personality. And then you can remember more about the plant.
0: Stephen, what are some of the lengths you've gone to to get a certain plant. Oh, well, I've travelled
1: overseas to get plants. So I've done that.
0: What's in one of the most difficult specimens? Uh,
1: Look, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, the issue is not so much the difficult specimens to get hold of because lots of nurseries in England and America and places have wonderful ranges of plants that... I could be very happy to transport most of them and bring them here because they're things we don't have. Um, it's more a matter of whether you actually manage to get them alive at the other end when you bring them through quarantine and so forth. And I've had lots of, Successes, and I've had quite a number of unmitigated disasters with plants trying to get them through quarantine and alive at the other end.
0: What holds, what is prohibitive?
1: Well, they've got to stay in quarantine for a minimum of three months, and they have to show growth in quarantine for three months. And if you're using quarantine that's government run, they tend not to look after your plants terribly well, or they don't understand the plants terribly well, so they don't look after them properly. Although one does have this idea that maybe they're doing it on purpose so that you won't import any more if they manage to kill a fair few. Um, So you do often have quite a high attrition rate in the things that you're trying to bring through. And I remember a batch of material I bought from a, a botanist in China, some Chinese woodland plants and the plants alone i don't remember what all the other charges were but i remember it cost me 400 american dollars for the plants and that was just it so there was postage there was quarantine fees permits um all those other things on top so so I c- what
0: does it translate to a plant cost
1: well considering i got two plants out of quarantine from that batch quite high (laughs) but i mean other times i've had really good success but you know sometimes you just have this complete failure you know somebody doesn't uh doesn't remember it's their rostered weekend on in the quarantine house so they don't water anything you know things like that can happen so it is it's it's a lottery and if i bring in plants i always say to myself i've got that much money to spend and i'm spending it like i'm going to the casino i won't spend any more but i can lose that and not worry too much
0: stephen what have you bought for us today
1: oh look i bought some leaves in because i thought the the Thing for me in gardening, I want my garden to entertain me. I want my garden to teach me. Uh, I want it to look exuberant and and exciting, which you don't get from multiple plantings of the same plant. I'm sorry, but, you know, a lot of landscape designers will put in the row of pear trees. So and
0: you, you don't like my um, pear trees, my row of pear trees that I've just planted in the front garden?
1: Oops, sorry, Stephen. I was unaware of that, but there you no, go. I what haven't. can I say? Um, but that sort of planting looks very formal and it looks very purposeful and it can work very well for people who don't want to garden. But I want to garden. Yeah. And I remember Christopher Lloyd once saying that a low maintenance garden always looks like one, uh, mm. which is in a sense quite true. Mm. Uh, so I want my garden to be hard work, lots of things to do, lots of things to learn. And I bought in a whole pile of leaves because one of the things I love in gardens is textures and foliages and They're forms. Beautiful. Um, it's more about that to me than colour coordinating and all that sort of stuff. In fact, I've been like most keen gardeners through all the different phases in my life. So I started out with the exuberant, I don't care what it is, lolly box sort of effect. And you'd plant 20 dahlias, all the different colors. And you got excited by that. As a kid, that's how I gardened. Then I got terribly tasteful. Uh, and it came to the point where what I was really interested in was some minute little green flowered thing that you needed a microscope to actually see. But it was exquisite and beautiful, but had actually no garden context. And now I've sort of gone, and, and then I got into colour coordinating. I have to say, I did go colour coordinating, in, especially in my own garden. So I had the sort of red border a la Hidkit Manor, but obviously better. Uh, I had the Barbara Cartland pink and white border. I had a yellow and blue border, all those things. And then I realised the issues you had when you were trying to colour coordinate down to those levels were that, You'd either have a plant that worked but not be- but didn't because it was a sunny border and that plant needed shade or it flowered two months later than the other plant flowered. So they
0: didn't really coordinate. A-
1: and, and, and when you got down to that level, there were reds that screamed with other reds. So when you really become a serious colour coordinator, it becomes a nightmare. Um, you know, there's sort of... The, the orange reds don't really go terribly well with the burgundy and, and blue reds. You know, they scream at each other. So I decided that that wasn't the way to go. So for me, it suddenly dawned on me that the way to do it was to use lots of interesting foliages and they can be repetitive forms, but different plants. I mean, I brought along... So what of, have you got? Well, I've got a couple of things here that explain what I mean. Um, there's a plant here called Wigandia that comes from Mexico and it gets big platy leaves and they're slightly rough and, and interestingly textured um, and it has big purple flowers on it in the summer but that's neither here nor there in a way and there's another plant here called Ritamna, which gets slightly more rounded leaves but is also furry and the two plants have a similar growth pattern Mm -hmm. so if i want to have a big bold foliage plant i can have two different big bold foliage plants i don't have to plant two uh it's it's almost
0: like velvet it is uh, and
1: actually the Velvet. Te- textures of leaves and things are really fascinating. Um, so I can get big, bold leaves to give me that tropical exuberance. And, of course, living at Macedon, it's far from tropical, but I want a tropical look. What have we got here, Well, Stephen? that's a Japanese rice paper plant, Tetrapanax, and that's a baby leaf. I, I didn't wow. have room in my bag to bring you a big leaf, but that can get a leaf nearly a metre across. Wow. And it has a single stem virtually that comes up and then all these leaves sit out on the top of it and the plant itself actually suckers. So another one will pop up a couple of feet away or a metre or more yeah. away. Uh, and so you end up with a drift of them and you just pull out the ones you don't want. And so that ties the garden together in a way.
0: This doesn't flower. It's just the it leaf. does
1: get flowers, but they're not important. Yeah, and so a lot delicious. of these things, it's not important, the well, What's
0: so lovely about this one is it almost looks like origami. It's it does. folded. It's yeah. Each leaf looks like it's been pressed and yeah,
1: folded. It's a beautiful leaf. Um, and, in fact, it has, and again, it has an interesting history. It's called a Japanese rice paper plant because they used to use the uh, pith out of the stems to make a paper that they made um, paper flowers and things out of in Japan and exported them all over the world. Um, and when you know something like that, it just makes the plant mm. that much more interesting. So, you know, yeah, so for me, that's sort of what m- matters. In fact, you know, there's another lovely big platy leaf here, and that's an ornamental tobacco, um Nicotiana nightii. And I had its flowers here. Oh, there they are. It has these weird little green flowers. Mm. But lovely foliage. So. And again, it's the feel of the plant. Yeah.
0: It's almost like a fabric.
1: It is. It's beautiful. And so the flowers are pretty, but the flowers are not the point. Right. And so what I've come to in my garden now is I want an exuberant planting of all sorts of interesting foliages, textures and forms with flowers. But the only way I color coordinate now is that I use pastel colors in certain areas and I use strong and primary colors in other areas. Mm. And you can have a hot pink with a bright red and a bright yellow and a rich purple all in the one border, and it looks fabulous. Mm. If you have pale pink, white, lavender, mauve, pale blues, they all go in together. Mm. So my garden needs to have those sorts of areas because if I'm feeling hot, depressed, and whatever, I go into my pale, subtle area. I can sit down with a glass of wine or a whiskey in the evening and relax into the garden. On the other hand, if I'm feeling bright and cheery and what have you and want to to have a lift, I go out into my hot border, as I call it, where I've got oranges, reds, and yellows, and pinks and things fighting it out, and it's exciting. And that's what a garden should be. It should be multi-layered. Why, why, Stephen, have we lost the art of
0: gardening? And I think we have, in a sense.
1: I blame the government. Do you? Yeah, quite literally. I'm kidding in one What's sense. but why? Because they always target gardeners. Gardening used to be, back in the 1940s and 50s, you might have had the bowling green lawn, the standard iceberg roses to the front door, uh, a lemon tree in the backyard and a chook shed. And when you went out and gardened... It was considered to be a healthy pursuit and something that everybody should do because they show that they're you know, uh, social creatures living in a community and they're showing their best and all that sort of thing. And at the same time, they were spraying DDT, arsenate of lead, uh, all sorts of nasty chemicals all over the place. To tame the garden. Yeah, to tame the garden. But it was seen as, as perfectly morally justifiable to do all those things. Now gardening has become a moral minefield, and people are just frightened to move into it. You've got... The government's saying you shouldn't water green things because it's immoral wasting water on them. So the first person that is hit by water restrictions when they come in is the home gardener, which I find ridiculous. You can have 10 children and be washing nappies every day, and and that's okay. But you can't go out and water your plants. I think that's outrageous, and it really annoys me beyond belief. Then you have these mixed messages, because one government body will say don't water, so plant things that are drought tolerant. Then you have another government agency, particularly the Department of Primary Industry, who will tell you not to plant things that don't need watering because they're the very plants that could go feral. So you're getting all these mixed messages from everywhere. Uh, and then you've got the Australian Native Brigade that say we should only have native plants. Mm. And and so they make you feel uh, morally degenerate because you plant something that comes from Mexico. Mm. I mean, that worries me. I mean, that shouldn't be the case. And they have all sorts of reasons for why they'll say that you know you need to plant the native plants for the native animals but i mean my nectar feeding birds will go to any flower with nectar in it in my garden they're not particularly worried whether they're eating mexican or or whatever you know so it doesn't matter to them as long as it's got nectar they'll go there and in fact some of my native birds will go to my south american fuchsias before they go to my grevilleas so there's i don't think there's any arguments that you can hold up to say that we should be doing just native
0: so, Stephen, you think government's one yeah. issue? Yeah. <laughs> What's another one?
1: Well, another another issue is, in fact, we've touched on this earlier, is the fact that the nursery industry is growing to the market, not creating the market that they want. They're playing so, safe. They're playing safe. They, they grow the things that they know will sell from a nursery without anybody needing to explain them. Therefore, you don't have to have qualified staff to explain plants to people. Uh, People can walk in and they'll see that potted cyclamen in flower and pick it up because it's sort of a plant they can understand. Mm -hmm. But if they walked into my nursery and saw a rare alpine African violet relative from the hills of Bulgaria, which I can actually sell them, Mm -hmm. um, it's no harder to grow than the potted cyclamen. In fact, probably easier. But they don't understand the plant. It would never sell in Bunnings. It would never work in the general garden centres. Mm. It would just sit there till it died. And so the nursery industry is not encouraging people to experiment. They're encouraging people to buy the things they're already propagating. Mm. And so the industry is not helping. The government certainly doesn't help. Uh, and a lot of, you know, sort of quasi sort of organisations out there all have their own barrows to push. You know, there's the native groups. There's the permaculture groups. There's the land care groups. There's... Uh, all sorts of groups that all have their own particular barrow to push and they're not necessarily engaging with gardeners as a whole and saying, yes, you can have a peony if you want one. uh, And there's no reason why you can't have a grevillea if you want one.
0: Is the other problem, Stephen, that people have become very impatient. Oh, there is that. And that people, rather than taking time to nurture plants, to grow Mm. plants from bulbs, to see things mature and really Mm. excite, that it's this instance, instance... It's response. the life
1: thing. And gardening is the one place where you shouldn't be getting instantaneous things. Our life is full of instant gratification in every direction now. You know, you can go onto the internet and find anything you want now. You can go into fast food places and get something edible sort of now. Um, and so we're in that point now where I'd actually like to start the slow gardening movement. I mean, the slow is there one? slow f- I don't believe so, but there should be. Um, the slow cooking movement seemed to work. The slow food movement, mm-hmm. people understood their that really good food takes time to prepare.
0: So do gardens.
1: And gardens do. And in fact, gardens aren't a product. They're a process. You know, I always say to my clients, it's a journey, not a destination. And and the only time you need something fast growing is if your neighbour's kitchen window is looking straight inside your bathroom one. And the way to stop them looking is to walk naked backwards and forwards a few times and they'll stop looking. Don't worry about planting something too fast growing. <laughs> um, you don't need things to grow fast. And in fact, the best plants often aren't fast growing plants. I have this idea that if and when I make 80, I'm going to plant something that takes 20 years to flower because I can. And it would give me something to live for. Why wouldn't you do that at 80? Go, all right, I'll plant that magnolia campbelli. I might never see it flower. But it'll give pleasure to the next owner. Of course it does. And that's the other thing too. It's the watching plants grow and evolve. I mean, when you're looking forward, everything seems to take forever. But if you've been in a garden a few years and you've been planting and feeding and watering and caring, and you look back over the last few years you've been in your garden and you look at how much things have grown, you go, my God, you know, isn't that fantastic? I've got this tree that just started as a stick you know and clean. and that's what it should be about you don't yeah. go out and buy the pretty pre-made tree yeah. you plant one and you enjoy and watch it grow yeah. and the faster a tree grows in general the quicker it dies too so if you're going to put in quick growing hardy something or anothers then you'll, you'll see it disappear you'll see it disappear so why not plant something that you can just watch grow into beautiful old age and many pl- plants particularly many trees do in fact with time grow into magnificent old age i mean we never do but the trees mm-hmm. can um, and so they develop uh, this wonderful character and form i mean just think about old olive trees and old mulberry trees and
0: steven um, you worked as uh presenter, host for Gardening Australia for three years, yep. a significant amount of time. And you must have seen some extraordinary gardens in that In time. both
1: directions, I have. Yes, well, in well, the good and the, the bad. bad, yes. How do
0: you deal with a really poorly thought-out garden? I mean, sometimes you're given these gardens to look at.
1: Most of the time you're given the garden. Right. So you they, they give you the brief and they say, you're going to so-and-so's place, here's the address, and you've never actually seen
0: it. And what happens? I mean, do you, how do you react when you say go into something that all clipped and manicured, looked like
1: it'd been, you know, turned out of a, a jelly mould. You've got what to did- be polite, because <laughs> <laughs> it is television. I can't turn around and say, what a boring garden you've got, my dear. Uh, I'd love to be able to do that with some garden. What's
0: gardens. the closest you've said to, uh, to look, offending someone? I
1: don't think I've ever actually offended anybody, but there was a garden, and I won't give you any names don't or pack drills, uh, but it was a garden, and the only reason it was selected by one of the researchers was that it was a, a double block and one block faced the street, and the other block faced the street at the back, and they'd garden throughout, so they had a big garden, um, and it had no design, it had a few trees and shrubs on it, it had a big swimming pool, I remember, and it was so hard to say anything nice particularly about it. I even picked on a variegated camellia and said that's interesting because... That I could
0: not any nice thing about
1: it. Well, actually, no, because no. I don't like variegated camellias, <laughs> but it was something I could actually comment on, because um, when variegated camellias flower, they have mm. sort of yellowy-edged leaves with bright pink flowers, which for me just doesn't work. Um, but this woman loved her garden, and part of the the idea of it was that when they got too old to deal with, they were going to sell off the lower block. So that was sort of the premise of the story, in so a way. So they
0: didn't want to invest too much in the garden. No,
1: so they didn't, in fact. I mean, they had but lawn they on the other block out. and a few trees.
0: So get you out to a place like I
1: that. asked that question afterwards <laughs> but of course once you've committed the time and effort to have a film crew and a director and and your own self getting there to be the on camera talent and you've organized this garden owner you've just got to make the best of it sometimes
0: stephen when you're put in that position and you see something that is underwhelming mm. and that happens a lot yeah. of the time is there a tendency to say, oh, look, if you do this or if you do that, you'd really – or do you just hold back? I know it's about the owners and it's I not- have to
1: say you don't actually get a chance to do that uh, because even if you try, most of those garden visits you make are actually fairly scripted. The director already knows what he wants you to ask about, so he will have a list of questions that he thinks you should ask. I remember being in a garden at one stage which was – Again, it was a biggish suburban garden. It was in one of the leafy suburbs of sort of east, eastern Melbourne. And it was a very pleasant garden. But it wasn't an exciting garden in lots of ways. But it did have a few exciting plants. And I wanted to hone in on the plants because he had a few things that were really interesting. And there was actually a story I could, I could run off it because there was actually three things in the garden which are known as monocarpic plants that grow for several years, flower and then die. And the owner didn't realise that he had plants that were going to die when they flowered. In fact, one was coming into flower as we spoke. Uh, and he had no idea about this. And I thought it could have been a really interesting story. But they'd, but they'd already gone off where they wanted, or they'd gone on with their storyline of what they wanted me to say. So mm. it was just one of those things that you just, you, I mean, towards the end of my tenure there, I mean, I know that they were getting ready to move the next guy in because they already had him in place. It was walk how we want you to dress how we want you to say what we want you to. Is that do you, do you think that's become uh, indicative of the broader media scene now? Oh, look, I think it has to a large extent. I it's mean, it's not enough
0: self-expression. No,
1: and most of the people who are the front people, like me being the host of Gardening Australia, are not given the credit for knowing enough to take everybody beyond their own knowledge. So I have to, I had to at the time, if I had a storyline I wanted to use, I would have to get the, uh, producers okay for this storyline. Now the producer, instead of going to the researchers and saying, Stephen wants to do cloud pruning or whatever, and I don't know what that is, um, is it a story that we could run with? Would it make sense? He would just say, I don't understand cloud pruning. You're not doing it.
0: I think that's a problem.
1: And it is a problem. They should, you know, if you're going to hire somebody for their talent and knowledge, then you actually should use it. And so I have to say, towards the end of it, the program was just using me as a walking head. Uh, And and it was, it was sad. I mean, I was enjoying it in lots of other ways. I was trying to get them to let me loose a little bit. Um, But of course, they'd already made up their mind that they were moving on. So there was no way they were going to let me loose. So it just had to be that way. Stephen, do you
0: get approached? By clients wanting advice for their garden,
1: not just plants? I do, and I do, at least locally, I do a little bit of what I call garden consultative work. Uh, I don't want to travel vast distances to do it because I don't have the time, but if there's people around the Macedon Ranges, sort of from Gisborne to Woodend to Kyneton, sort of around my area, um, who are looking for help, uh, what I normally do is I make a small charge. uh, I'll go out and spend an hour with people in their garden, they're expected to have a notepad with them and they write notes about the things I'm suggesting and and offering them. Uh, They also already need to have some sense of where they want to go in their garden so that they can lead me a little bit. So if they want to spend a lot of time or they want to spend little time or they want to put in a swimming pool or a tennis court or other things that they might want to incorporate that aren't there yet, as long as I know what might be going in, then I can give them advice on how to lay out a garden and also to give them a sort of a, sense of, of a sense of continuity, a theming sort of idea. You know, what way to go, you know, what group of plants might work well for them that could in fact become a motif through the garden and uh, all that sort of thing. What Stephen, what do you think are some of the common
0: mistakes people make? In their gardens, is it overplanting? Is it just?
1: Um... I don't believe in over, uh, that. Overplanting is ever an issue as long as you're strong enough to then deal with it as time goes on. So overplanting is actually a good thing. Well, in lots of ways, it's good for your local nurseryman because uh, <laughs> I can make a few extra dollars, which is quite good. Um, but I don't like to see bare ground. So I'm actually an inveterate overplanter myself. So I don't see overplanting as an issue as long as you're prepared to be strong enough to deal with things as plants mature and change and things get wiped out because they get smothered and what have you. Uh, so an overplanted exuberant garden I can live with. But the th- the interesting part about gardening is one of those clipped box hedgy type gardens is quite understandable. You can get Jim's mowing in to deal with it. Um, the hedge needs trimming, you can tell a really exuberant overplanted garden on the other hand it's very hard to keep it looking that way without any up clipping everything back within an inch of its life and so to actually make a garden look like nature put it there is one of the hardest things you can possibly do because you've still got to keep control but you don't want control to be seen mm-hmm. and Creating a garden like that is very, very difficult. uh, I mean, it's almost something that has to be intuitive in a way uh, because you've got to be able to walk around and see where something might need to be pruned back and, in fact, where to prune it back to, um, to see that something is now getting choked out and actually needs to be removed, uh, whether you need to lift a canopy up to get some more plants underneath, because we're always wanting to put more things in, and all those things can be quite tricky to get right, and that's why I was a bit offended by this person who wanted to recreate my garden, mm. because it's an evolving, changing thing all the time. You can't...
0: And it's a different <laughs> context completely. And it
1: is. It would be a different context in their garden, uh, and if they've got a gardener looking after their garden, then at the end of the day, their garden will actually be a reflection of their gardener, not of them.
0: Stephen, as a leader for a, a tourist cultural company called Australian Studying Abroad, I know you do tours overseas, yeah. what would be some of the great gardens in the world? What would you consider to
1: be? Oh, it's nearly always not the great big well-known ones that really catch my attention. I mean, I can't stand Versailles. <laughs> I mean, I can understand it as a landscape uh, and I can stand in it and appreciate the work and effort that's gone into it. By but La I, I hate it. Uh, La is yeah he it's funny because when you go to france all the french talk about capability brown as being an absolute vandal because he wiped out the opposite yeah he wiped out all those french gardens though in england so of course the french see him as a vandal um and of course the english hate Notre because he imposed all that dreadful formality on them and so they saw him as someone that you wouldn't want to have as a a garden designer so I find that sort of
0: and so what do you find just the
1: whole thing to control it is I mean that was the whole point of those French gardens anyway it was to show control over Mm. nature and and for me that's not what it's about for me it's engaging with nature and bringing it into your setting and not trying to replicate nature but but have a sense of natural exuberance and and And, things get going mad what would be a great
0: garden that you saw
1: Uh, Look, if I was going to take people away to look at gardens, uh, they would be personally owned gardens that have had the life's experience of a garden owner. And one of them sort of comes straight into my mind is places like Great Dixter in England that was Christopher Lloyd's garden. It had a very strong landscape design in the first place because it was actually the layout was designed by by Edwin Lutyens. So it had a quite strong landscape. But it was then superimposed with Christopher Lloyd's own personality and it became his garden. Even though you could see the, the Lutchen's bits there and, and and the way it was laid out was all terribly Lutchen's, but it was a real plantsman's garden. And in fact, I had to go back to it two or three times before I understood it uh, because it was quirky. It was different and it, and it wasn't painting a garden by numbers. Mm. Uh, and so, And it was very personal. I mean, he had colour combinations in his garden that I would never do. But it worked. Well, for him it did. <laughs> you know, and, and that's all that really mattered. Yeah. And, and that's what I always say to people. I mean, Christopher Lloyd lived in that garden till he was over 80. I think he was 84 when he passed away. He was actually born on the property. He spent a little bit of time away at college and, and, and during the war um, working. Uh, but he spent the rest of his life in that garden and he was still refining his long border. Yeah. You know, so it was never over. Uh, and now his head gardener of the time who had been with Christo for many years, is now in charge of the garden and he's now refining the long border. So if Christo came back now, he'd probably be horrified with some of the things that Fergus has done to the garden. But Fergus is now stamping his own personality onto it and, in fact, in some ways taking it in a horticultural way to a, a new level. You know, I mean, the amount of effort and time they're putting into some things that Christo probably wouldn't have bothered with mm. uh, is truly remarkable. Mm. And so it's those sorts of gardens. And look, I can't tell you the names, but I was in Portland, Oregon some years ago and there was a group of gardeners over there that called themselves the Daisy Chain and they're all what they call garden geeks. They were all mad keen plant collectors collecting all sorts of weird stuff and they were also in zonal denial is the term they use where they were growing things that they knew they shouldn't be growing in their climate because of course America, America's divided up into zones which we've never got our head around in this country so they were always trying to grow things that were from a zone that was just that little bit warmer than theirs so and I went to some amazing quite small gardens but amazing exuberant loved pieces of ground and that for me was what it was all about.
0: I think you can tell when a garden's really loved whether it's just for the neighbours I I think you can I think you can see something that really has a voice. Yep, And and that's what a
1: that's a good garden to me if it has a voice.
0: Stephen, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Um, I wish I could see you on television, but I'm sure you'll pop up again. I
1: have got a good fi- face for radio. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so have I. Look, you've been with, um, I've been talking to Stephen Ryan, who's, um, who runs a Dixonia rare plant uh, nursery at uh, Mount Maston, and you've been with Stephen Crafty, talking design at RMIT. Thanks so much for listening.